Welcome to Flight Safety Detectives. Here, hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation experts, talk about all things aviation safety. This podcast is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-241-7891. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up on the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, my friend. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Um, We are toddlers today. Um, It's just you and me. I've been traveling as uh, I typically do, and I know that you are out and about. So what's going on and where are you? I'm back in Boston. I was in uh, upstate New York yesterday, or day before yesterday, and uh, it was just a day trip. And I'm back now through Thanksgiving. In fact, uh, right after Thanksgiving, you and I have a joint trip coming up. Yes, we do. Yep. So I know I just got back. uh, I had two trials and a deposition in a 12-day period. So that was quite a bit of brain damage. But, uh, you know, it's all in the interest of aviation safety. They didn't lock you up? (laughs) They tried. (laughs) I was able to escape. I went in stealth and got out of there stealth. So. Well, I know it's been a busy month so far, and we're two and a half weeks into the month, John. There's been a number of fatal accidents, uh, you know, and it's a variety of airplanes, from an RV-6 through a King Air, a Twin Comanche, a Mooney, and of course, a a 172 that we're going to talk about today, involving a guy who just recently went to space on one of Bezos' Blue Origin spacecraft. But, uh, you know, again, our sponsors, especially Avemco Insurance, is, you know, it's just, it's got to be crazy for the insurance industry when we have this kind of run of accidents. We have to presume that these airplanes are insured and the insurance companies have just got to be beside themselves because the losses are mounting. And in this particular month so far, they're mounting at a pretty good rate. Well, you know, years ago, we, I can remember we had, uh, 30 years ago, well, a little less, 25 years ago, we were having about 1,800 accidents a year. And uh, a lot of them were very frustrating, like 400 or so that ran out of gas. Yeah. That used to drive me nuts because how stupid can you be as a pilot to run out of gas? <laughs> I, I'm, sure, I'm sure there was a few of those that got caught in weather and they couldn't get into their alternate and you know some extenuating circumstances but not all of them. I mean, it was trying to get back home because the gas in my home airport's five cents a gallon cheaper. Yeah. You know, that's, but yeah, I've been watching those accidents as well. And uh, there's no rhyme or reason to them so far. I mean, is it, is it an example of what we've been preaching for months now about steel pilots coming out and think they're gonna walk out to the airport and pick up where they left off after not flying for an extended period? not thinking about flying, not doing pre-flights, not, not getting uh, uh, really close to your airplane so that you understand all that's been going on to it because airplanes don't like to be sitting around either. Yeah. A lot well, of them must be entering into this. You know, it's crazy, John. I mean, I'm a FAA fast team representative. So 
we had a, an annual training today and, you know, we were, again, we're still talking about the same subjects. I brought up the fact that we've had a number of flight instruction accidents, which really concerns me, training accidents with flight instructors. There shouldn't be accidents with flight instructors on board because if a student does make a mistake, where is the flight instructor to take the, the appropriate corrective action, you know, and, and something's being lost there and I'm not sure what it is. That's why I've been tracking all these accidents, trying to find a common denominator. But the other thing we are talking about, of course, is loss of control. And that is the basis for the accident we're talking about today. Not only is it a loss control type accident, but of course it had a flight instructor on board. So again, these are the issues that it, it's, it, it's repetitive. And while we try to make sense of these accidents and, and understand the nuances so that we can at least enhance aviation safety, where is this message getting lost? Yeah, it's, it's really lost too. I, I mean, part of me wants to say, we in the aviation industry trying to reach our pilots and others, we're doing the same old things over and over again. They're not working. We've got to come up with a new mixture, a new, a new uh, formula uh, to deliver the safety message to everybody and make sure yeah. that it receives you know, uh, what that, that in human factors, we used to call it spray and pray after an accident. So you come running out, you train everybody. So you spray all this training out there and you pray some of it sticks. Yeah. You need to do more than that. We need to make sure that, that, uh, that people are understanding it because I'm sure that, you know, in, in this month, maybe there was eight or 10 accidents. I'm sure that most of those could have been prevented. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it, that's, I think, obvious, John, as obvious as it is to you and me. But the question is, why isn't it sticking? And what more can we do? Um, you know, there's a number of podcasts out there that pilots like you and me um, are trying to, you know, preach that message. I know a number of the guys that are doing these pod podcasts, you know, Max Trescott and all these guys we're pumping out what we think is very good information, their tools, their learning lessons, their, you know, reiterations of policies and procedures and operational discipline and all of these things. But why is this message getting lost? Is it because, you know, oh, it can't happen to me. I would never do that. I would never put myself in that position. One of the other things, of course, that I'm seeing uh, of late are drugs more drugs in pilot systems when, uh, when we're getting the tox back. Now, a, a number of pilots, and you and I are going to have a discussion about this in the near future, because there's just been so many accidents of, of late, where some level of drug, even over-the-counter uh, medications, have been found in the pilot, and the board has zeroed in on that. Some of it is rightly attributed to the pilot and their performance, some of the board has tagged pilots with being in somewhat of an incapacitated state because of these, quote, drugs, yet they have no level that they can turn to to say that it was or it was not a, a, an effect on the pilot's performance. I have a real issue with that because I'm dealing with one of those accidents right now where just because it was found in the system doesn't mean that the pilot was under the influence of this particular uh, antihistamine. 
And for the board to make that leap of faith, like, well, it, because it was there, it had to be uh, impairing the pilot's judgment or, or performance is just totally flat wrong because as anybody knows, these drugs all have a half-life and a quarter-life. I mean, you, marijuana, if you look at somebody and you and I have been these accidents where somebody has smoked marijuana a week before, had nothing to do with marijuana for a week, but it's still found in traces in a, in a body uh, or toxicology uh, study, again, you can't say that that pilot was under the influence. So we're going to be talking about that more in depth. But this accident that uh, you and I are going to be talking about today in brevity, because we don't have a lot of information, but it became a noteworthy accident because of one of the pilots on board this Cessna 172. Sure did. I mean, he, he just went to space with Schaffner and, uh, and all the pomp and circumstances that went with it. I mean, it's, it's really unfortunate. Uh, this guy uh, uh, was only a private pilot's license according to what the FAA has said. Uh, but it's not clear how, how much time he had. Because uh, I don't trust the numbers that I get from the FAA sometimes. They're usually behind the times. And it looked like he may have been a newly minted instrument pilot because uh, the issuance date on his certificate based on the FAA record was of recent, it was like May of this year. Whether that was a reissuance because of an address change or something else, or he got a, an instrument rating at that point, uh, that's yet to be ferreted out by us and I'm sure the NTSB and the FAA. Yes, but what about the guy that's with them? I yeah, mean, that's the concern. You look through this, he had, he had a flight instructor with him. The guy owned the company uh, that's providing the instruction. He has, he's all over the internet. Uh, so he has a lot of fame for, for his piloting skills and his flight instruction. Uh, a, a number of people who have, have, have uh, had instruction from him were singing his praises. Uh, what happened? I mean, all of a sudden, did he go, go uh, sideways? You know, but the first thing that came to my mind is, could we have had an exhaust leak in the airplane? It's been chilly up here in the Northeast. Could, could he have the heat on? Could we have an exhaust leak into the airplane? And, you know, given that it was a very short, short duration flight, uh, it is possible that they got got uh, asphyxiated from exhaust. Yeah, I mean, this was a late model 172. But again, I, I don't care if it's a brand new airplane, if it's not well maintained, or if you got a problem coming out of the factory um, that manifests itself, anything is possible. And that's going to be one aspect that the NTSB is going to have to look at that, uh, of course, that's where the toxicology will be very important. Um, it looks from the pictures that I've seen, and some of the descriptions, that this was uh, at least a stall spin event. And it had to have happened at a low altitude because uh, recovery wasn't affected. And, and of course, they went into a wooded area and, and both were fatalities. Uh, they did hit with a lot of energy. So whether the recovery was in process or there was no recovery because of the low altitude, again, those kinds of factors will have to be determined by the NTSB as to where they play 
out in the, uh, the cause or contributing factors of this accident. Like you said, John, this is a short duration flight. They weren't in the air very long. They were basically going between airports that are what, 20 minutes plus away from each other. I've flown out of Caldwell Airport when I was working for the NTSB up in New York, in the New York area, New Jersey area. I mean, it's a great airport. There's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's surrounded by woods and houses and that kind of stuff, but it was, it's nothing extraordinary. Um, but where this airplane supposedly crashed was over a wildlife area in the Delaware water, what they call the Delaware water gap. Now, I, I'm familiar with that area. I grew up on the East Coast in Maryland, flying all over that particular area, uh, Maryland, Pennsylvania. Um, I still fly in that area. I drive through there quite a bit because I hunt up in Pennsylvania. And so it is a pretty, it's a picturesque place, especially uh, this time of year because of fall colors. And, um, you know, were they maneuvering at low altitude, looking at stuff? Uh, were they, you know, doing flight instruction? I know that you know, this pilot may have been trying to work on a commercial certificate. So who knows, maybe they were doing some sort of training maneuvers that got out of hand. All of these are questions that we may or may not have answers to uh, either through the NTSB or just through the investigative process itself. Yeah, and you know, it's a shame with the way with the NTSB is, is operating today is by the time we get, you know, they've increased and you and I have had these conversations. It used to be the one-year mandate. And I can remember Ron Sleeg and Bernie Loeb. Uh, uh, if you didn't get it out in one year, they were all over you. Yeah. I mean, that, they were senior management. Ron Sleeg and Bernie Loeb were senior management at the NTSB. And they, they ran aviation accident investigation. And that one year, yeah, I mean, they'd be, they'd be just shot of screaming at you. <laughs> yeah. And again, you know, every accident deserves a thorough and methodical investigation process. You and I have been critical of the board, and we will continue to be critical of the board for not making that process happen. Um, there are times where the board puts out stuff, even in a prelim, which is by their mandate supposed to be issued within a 10-day period of the accident. I know that we're bumping up on day 10 of the accident we're talking about today, and there is no prelim out. So I'm hoping that in the next day or two, we'll see something that may give us additional information that can help us talk about it and bring out those lessons learned and talk about what the board's gonna be looking at. But until that happens, we really have nothing to go on other than the fact that we have two pilots, one highly experienced flight instructor and a pilot who apparently has met the qualifications and then been found um, at least uh, qualified to hold an instrument certificate. They weren't in instrument meteorological conditions on the day of the accident. So now the question is, what were they doing? And if they were doing maneuvers, why were they doing them at such an altitude that did not afford them the protection of, uh, of uh, recovery? So, I mean, these are the kinds of things, but the thing that bothers me the most is we got a, a highly experienced flight instructor on board this airplane and we've lost we've lost another set of pilots for what reason i mean we've had now i think 15 i've been i'm trying to track these uh these flight instructor accidents we've got 15 that i know of 
where we can verify that they were true flight instruction accidents that are all fatalities. Now, I know one of them that I'm currently working uh, involves a mechanical malfunction of the airplane, which probably affected the ability of the, the pilots to recover. But the other ones are true training type accidents. And the question remains, what is going on? I mean, it's very, very frustrating. You're, if you're a flight instructor, you're there as the safety tool. You're trying to teach. You're trying to, you're trying to instruct. You're trying to take a pilot, exercise at least your teaching abilities to train them how to do maneuvers. And yes, as an instructor, you have to expect that a, that a student is not going to do it perfectly. They're, they're going to be a little overwhelmed, especially if this is a, a new student pilot that is doing a maneuver. You have to be cocked and loaded and ready to uh, you know, intervene and recover the airplane if something goes awry. The question is, why aren't they doing that? Or why aren't they able to do that? Yeah, so often, you know, so, you know, I'm still concerned about the time it takes for the NTSB to put out the information. Because right now we have, in the aviation community, a lot of focus on this accident. High profile person uh, on a couple of levels. Uh, the astronaut that was killed, he has a following. And this, this flight instructor has a pretty large following himself in the aviation community. So you have the attention of a number of pilots. You could drive home a very capable learning moment if you have enough detail out there in a relatively short period of time uh, so that uh, people like us can work it into, the, into talking about it and training people. With the NTSB, with stretching out their time limits to two years, they're going to lose that communication moment. Well, they've already lost it, John. You and I know both both know that, because that's why we have a show. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're trying to get information out. Some, you know, most of the time ahead of the NTSB, and even when the NTSB puts out a report, um, you and I start dissecting it and scrutinizing it. Some of their facts aren't really facts, and they aren't verified by the physical evidence or even supportable evidence uh, that they claim that they're using as the basis for a probable cause. The other thing that really bothers me, especially in some of these larger accidents that, again, I'm working some of them, you and I are working one of them together, um, where they have indicted a, uh, a manufacturer that puts an STC uh, winglet on an airplane. They, they call that the problem yet they produce no safety recommendations, no safety enhancements. And then on top of it, you got to wonder, well, they come out with a probable cause that you and I both don't think are supported by the facts. Where's the FAA? If this is the real cause and this is the real problem, where is the FAA? Good or bad, where is the FAA to either say, yeah, you're right, we got to do something about it, or no, you're wrong, you got to do something about it. You know what? What I find very troublesome with that, that particular accident is the fact that the NTSB's own performance report that they generate themselves internally without any real uh, participation from anybody, any of the parties, they, it's all theirs. And the performance report is opposite what the NTSB has said happened hmm. further on in the report. Yeah. 
Well, you and I are going to be uh, using that accident. We're going to dissect that accident thoroughly so that we can let the, uh, the, the listeners and our uh, viewers see all of the evidence. I mean, there's been a lot written about this particular accident. We don't want to go into it right now because we got some, we got some issues that we have to work out. But the, the biggest concern here is that methodology continues throughout all these other accidents. And that is very frustrating because they, they swipe the pen, if you will. They come up with a probable cause that really is not based on all the fact, condition, circumstances. You and I have used this term multiple times called cherry picking, where they cherry pick a fact or a factoid to try and support a pet theory that really isn't supportable. And it's a disservice. And, and again, when you have these high profile accidents like this 172, you brought up a very good point. One, let's, I mean, it's not that hard if you have competent investigators doing a competent investigation to be able to pull a bunch of information together in very short order to at least identify potential areas that are gonna be addressed and then see if we can't ferret out uh, you know, learning lessons or lessons learned uh, just from the prelim in, in information. We know it's gonna change because that's, that's what investigation process uh, basically results in is the facts as they come out, change the storyline. But there are moments that you know, right now there's, a, there's a, a, a big push to try and find out what could have happened to two people, a highly experienced flight instructor and at least a certificated private pilot with an instrument rating, flying a Cessna 172 that happened that so badly they lost the airplane that they couldn't recover it. There could also be a mechanical malfunction or failure that could be involved. And if that's true, then that's a safety critical element right now because there are thousands and thousands of Cessna 172s operating out there, especially because flight training has increased so bad or uh, so much that, uh, again, if there is a safety issue, you better get the information out now. We don't have two years to wait. Yeah, especially in mechanical failures. And, you know, my frustration at the board at the time was most of our mechanical uh, problems that they just said it was a maintenance failure and they let it hang like that. Can you imagine if we did that with the flight crews hmm. years ago? Oh, the pilot made a mistake, and then just leave it right there. Yeah. We had no improvements. Well, that's the way we are in maintenance because the NTSB doesn't get into the maintenance, into the nitty gritty in the maintenance arena like they do in the cockpit. And the consequence, we've had uh, 60 years of NTSB almost uh, reports that barely scratched the surface on maintenance involvement in accidents. I used to I used to say they would take the accident to the hangar doors and right up to the hangar doors and say, oh, it's maintenance and that's the end of it. Yeah. And uh, maintenance needed that help with, because if you don't identify the problems and the FAA can't address them and their resources are thin and they're gonna put their resources where they can identify the problems. Yeah. Maintenance needs the help today. I mean, we know that, that uh, maintenance manuals aren't what they should be especially on older general aviation airplanes. Uh, there needs to be improvements across the board in that area. And uh, the NTSB is not helping uh, facilitate those improvements. Yeah, it's, it, it, it is troubling. And, and again, 
you know, at the top of the show, we talked about all the accidents, all the fatal accidents that have happened just in the two and a half weeks of the month of November. I mean, there are a lot of accidents. And, and of course, they involve a, a wide range of, of airplanes from, uh, like I said, a King Air through a, a Twin Comanche, uh, Moonies, RVs, things like that. The concern I have is, are these accidents going to be just scraped up from the accident site, taken to a boneyard and examined at a later date when all the evidence has degraded? Or is the thorough and methodical portion of that investigation with the volatile evidence happening right now and it's just taking forever for the board to get that information out? Again, I mean, this is a safety organization that has a safety responsibility, but timing is the big thing because pilots, mechanics, operators, and of course, manufacturers need to know if there is some sort of safety issue that's causal or contributing to these accidents, get it back out so that we can learn from it. So we can enhance safety, either through a change of policy, procedure, SOPs, whatever, design, doesn't matter. But again, the timing has always been lousy um, and waiting to, I'm, hell, I got one accident. It's a simple accident involving a single engine airplane. We're three and a half years into the investigation and the board still has not put out a report. The other concern, John, of course, is, you know, not only the thoroughness of these investigations, but of course, getting those lessons learned. Are there things that can form the basis for the safety board to put out recommendations to improve safety. I haven't seen a lot come out of the NTSB in uh, you know, better than 20 years of any substance that has really improved aviation safety. Now I know they'll challenge that, but I'll, I'll be happy to take that challenge because I haven't seen a lot of improvement. They've talked about loss of control. The FAA has talked about loss of control with their working groups. I haven't seen a lot of feedback come out of all of that effort to improve aviation safety, because guess what? We're still having a lot of loss of control accidents. Yeah, that gets back to what I said in the beginning. We're doing the same things over and over and over again and expecting a different outcome. Uh, that's the definition of foolishness or something. Yeah. All right. We need to take a fresh look at what we know about training here in the in the 21st century. And yeah, I mean, so I see a lot of things online aimed at me because I teach school. And, uh, you know, I just got, I just got a whole bunch of material about how high school students think. So uh, to help understand when they come into college, you need to understand how they were thinking in high school. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think maybe we need to, to uh, professionalize some of this training would educate us and understand how we learn uh, uh, with a fresh look and a fresh set of eyes because yeah. we're not reaching the pilots. We're not reaching the aviation community. We need to do something. And, and you bring up a good point. I've raised this question a number of times. We all don't learn the same way. Some people are tactile learners. Some people can build these mental models and visualize things. Others can't. We don't do a very good job in training flight instructors on how to develop that particular teaching skill to those students, because you really got to, as a flight instructor, figure out from that student, I don't care if they're already a pilot, 
or they're a brand new student pilot, what learning um, technique works best for that particular person. But then on top of that, in, flight instructors are the same way. Some are very visual, some are tactile. And, and of course, any kind of recurrent type training or new influence training that we're trying to bring into the flight instruction community, we have to take those kinds of learning techniques into account and we have not done a very good job. The FAA put out a lot of information, but nobody reads it. And, and of course, nobody expresses it in a flight instructor, a flight instructor refresher course and things like that. And, and all of these are the backstories. These are the underlying problems, why the message may not be getting through to those people that really need it the most. And then of course, you always have the attitude I already know that I don't need it. Yeah, we got a lot of that. In, you know, and in every segment. I mean, I am mechanics. I've can't. I've had more arguments over mechanics uh, on general aviation airplanes. And uh, you know, I don't need the manual. I've been working on this on on Cessnas for for twenty years, thirty years. I don't need the manual. And yeah. I just my hair in the back of my neck stands up and I cringe um, yeah. because boy. And, and that gets back to the manuals not being adequate in a yeah. lot of the old airplanes. Exactly. Fact, don't you have something with Piper now with the manuals that are not, ac not accurate? Yep, and the design issue. So we're gonna be talking about that in the near future with, uh, with our buddy, Jason Lacassic. So, but you know, John, looking at this 172 accident we've been talking about, um, you brought up the point that this flight instructor was well-known He's uh, an internet hero, if you will. I mean, he's got a lot of information out there. He was lauded for putting an airplane down, uh, Cessna, presumably a 172 that had an engine problem. He had a student on board. He was able to put it into, into the parking lot of a shopping mall successfully. So we know that his skills, abilities, and knowledge are, are well above average. And, and of course, uh, the other pilot, DeFries, he... Um, apparently owned a single engine DA, probably a 40. It didn't really say, it just said he had a, uh, a diamond aircraft. But when you think about, okay, he's an owner. He, he understands ownership. He understands, uh, of course, flying as a private pilot because he's been flying for, you know, I think five years, according to the information I've, I've read. But, you know, he even got a, uh, a pilot proficiency certificate or badge from the FAA. That too is a demonstration. At least he's trying to do the right thing. Um, you know, he's keeping up with his flying. And in this case, he may have even been trying to keep up uh, with Fisher, the flight instructor, to maintain a level of proficiency, but for the fact that whatever they were doing got themselves in trouble. The last thing I want to talk about is the fact that the internet blows up with information. A lot of people want to dissect these accidents using flight aware data or flight radar 24. Those are good resources, but that data isn't necessarily always accurate. And of course, that's only a factoid. There has to be context to all of that information. So the stuff that I've read on the internet that the airplane was at 5,000 feet MSL or 4,700 feet MSL. Okay, that's great, but that's about 1,000 above or 3,000 above um, you know, terrain in those particular areas. Again, so what? Um, you know, yeah, you have a ground speed, it's, it's decayed, but you don't know why it's decaying. Is it because of an engine problem? Is it because of a mechanical problem? Is it because they're doing maneuvers? 
um, you know, the internet people want to try and build storylines around those little factoids. And that's not fair from an investigative standpoint, because it's not put in context. It's just factoids that somebody's tried to build a multiple of storylines around. Yeah, it's terrible at uh, what they do uh, uh, with that data. They pollute that data with their opinions, and and uh, sometimes it really casts dispersions on on the family, and yeah. it adds to the pain of the families. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we we criticize, and and we're very uh, you know tuned into what the NTSB does and does not do. Um, we do have to wait for them because uh, by rule, they are the ones that go out there or they send the FAA out there to collect all the facts, conditions, and circumstances. And in our current roles, John, we are dependent somewhat on the board in determining whatever facts they're going to present to us. You and I dig a little deeper. We go behind the scenes and get more factual information that may not show up um, in a NTSB and or FAA storyline. Um, that we think is critical. But for right now, all we can talk about are those facts that are currently available, which there aren't many. But when you start learning about the backgrounds of these two pilots, um, you know, to, to just write it off that these two guys screwed up um, is just totally unfair, like you talked about, to the families until we have more facts, conditions, and circumstances to go on. Yeah, these guys are too much experience to write it off for that. Uh, yeah. You know, they could have been doing maneuvers and then had a, an engine problem. Uh, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. I, I just hope that uh, we don't lose the NTSB doesn't leave any stone unturned and at least trying to get to the basics of, of the accident causation. Yeah. And, well, uh, you know, again, as we talked about at the top of the show, our sponsor of Emco. Um, when you look at all the things that they, uh, they do for the pilot and aviation community as far as insuring pilots, a variety of different pilot uh, types of pilots, of course, the aircraft that they fly, um, you know, they too have to be tracking this and, and they are somewhat dependent on the findings of the board to determine, again, trends and how they're going to um, underwrite particular risks because that is their evaluation process is determining the risk and seeing whether they want to take that risk but it's not just them it's every insurance company and I just read an article recently um, that the older pilot community is up in arms with the insurance industry they feel that they're being discriminated against those pilots that are in their 60s and 70s and even into their 80s they believe that the insurance industry is discriminating against them because they're either charging them very high rates or they won't insure them at all. And that's taking the fun out of flying for these folks because they can't get insurance. And, and again, you and I are gonna do some more research. We've talked about this, talking to not only our sponsor, but other folks in the insurance business that you and I both know, trying to get a handle on this. But you and I have also preached that if you are an older pilot, please talk to Avemco because we have already talked to them um, about this particular subject. And they said, look, we'll evaluate. We'll talk to the pilot. Let's see what kind of experience they, see, uh, they have. Let's see what they're intending to do, what kind of aircraft they're intending to fly. You know, we don't have a problem with it. We just need to talk to them and get some good information before we decide we're going to sign on the dotted line 
to take that risk. Yeah, and you know, and they, uh, for the other pilots in the, in the greater community, I mean, they offer uh, reductions in insurance of just a few attend safety programs, you get 5% for listening to us. Uh, I mean, it's really, uh, they bend over backwards to try to make the pilots that they ensure the safest pilots that they can. Yep. Uh, and they try, but, you know, is it sticking? Uh, I mean, we get back to that same problem. We're yeah. putting out all this information, we're packaging it up, we're giving it to them every which way we can. And the accident rate still just go in the wrong direction. What's missing? What is, what are we not seeing? Yeah. And, and really um, one of the functions of the NTSB is to be doing what you and I are talking about. They need to be looking at trends. They need to be identifying it. It's one thing to just talk the talk, but if you're not going to walk the walk, then what good is talking the talk? Uh, they have all of this information. Now, as you and I have talked in the previous past, you know, statistics aren't very good if the information that you're basing those statistics on isn't very good. And that's my concern. And it's always been my concern because they, they classify certain accidents or certain people in airplanes incorrectly. I don't know how many times they've incorrectly identified flight instructors as pilot rated passengers. That phonies the data. That doesn't demonstrate a flight instruction accident. So all of a sudden now you're pulling bad data. And now you really don't understand how many flight instruction related accidents there are in the causes and circumstances because it hasn't been classified properly. You know, and, and other people rely upon that data as well. I mean, AOPA puts out the null report. Yeah. And all the insurance industry uses a lot of the NTSB data. I mean, if it's skewed, uh, it has far ranging impacts. Yeah. And, and the uh, the impact of the pandemic on the 2020 accident rate hasn't really been felt yet. You know, have you heard? I know we know that from people in the industry that have been collecting airplane crashes and storing the, the, the wreckage for the NTSB. Do we know at all that they've gone back and started to look at those airplanes? They have, John. My concern is I was at a wreckage inspection recently where there were multiple wreckages laid out in the indoor facility where uh, the wreckage that I was looking at um, was laid out as well. I happened to ask the question about those two other uh, accidents with the wreckage laid out. And they said, oh, yeah, the NTSB is coming in. The investigator is going to look at both of those wreckages today. I said, there's no way. You cannot just rifle through a pile of wreckage and then move on to the next one and find anything of substantive value. That's not thorough and methodical. And to just go through the motions is a travesty because there is probably some safety added value by examining that wreckage to make sure that there is no evidence, no concrete evidence of a mechanical malfunction or failure. And, and again, you know, they scraped up all these wreckages, better than 400 of them, put them in storage, and now they got to catch up. So what kind of time are they going to spend? Not much. That's, that's a tragedy in itself. Yeah. I mean, I know what it takes for me in my afterlife with the work that I do now. I mean, 
the, the people that I work with, you know, on both sides of the fence, because I do expert witness work and, you know, I'm doing plaintiff and, and defense work uh, as many other colleagues that, uh, that are in the same business. When we lay a wreckage out, we're looking at every single piece. And I know how much time that, that takes. And as an accident investigator, when I was with the board, it wasn't just a matter of going out there and kicking tin for an hour and saying it's good to go. So again, you know, the, the critical information and possibly even safety value information could be lost in just doing filling the square. And that is, yep, I looked at the wreckage, nothing was wrong. And now we're going to look at the pilot and we're going to write it off to, you know, pilot lost control for unknown reasons. That simply is not good enough for this industry to live with. Yep, that's, a, that's akin to what I've been saying. It's mechanical failure. Mechanic made a mistake in the hangar. Yeah. With no detail, no, no, no look behind that statement. Well, I know that you and I will be following this 172 accident and many of the other accidents that have uh, recently happened, uh, you know, looking for those safety benefits. Um, we had an accident out here, which we're going to talk about uh, in a show in the near future, and that was uh, involving a firefighting aircraft um, using new technology to fight a fire in a fixed-wing airplane, NVGs or non-night uh, vision goggles. Um, I had some concerns about it when I heard it was being done. I know it's been done in other venues, of course, in other situations, especially with helicopters. But uh, now you're talking about trying to fly a single-engine fixed-wing airplane into very steep terrain, mountainous terrain at night, um, and then weather conditions. And of course, the contributory factor is, of course, the fire creating more turbulence in that immediate area and a pilot trying to accomplish a mission using NVGs that while they're great and they're a great tool, they do have limitations. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, at nighttime, I think they're crazy. Yeah. Well, and again, yeah, we can get into that discussion, but uh, I know that um, what we're going to do is follow this accident, try and get some of the backstories that, uh, that may not come out. But again, we appreciate you, the listener and the viewer. Um, we've got a lot of great emails. John and I are actually uh, now talking about putting another show together where we talk about some of these emails because we've had some great contribution from, uh, from our, our listener and viewer uh, body. And so we want to acknowledge uh, the good. We want to acknowledge the bad and everything in between because you've given us some great ideas and good feedback as to how we can make this show better and things that you want to listen to and, and hear us talk about. You can always contact us through our uh, website or through our email account at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. So with that, my friend, We've uh, put together another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. I will let you close us out. Okay. And remind everybody, even though we have it on our, our opening and closing, that uh, Avemco is a major sponsor of this show. We talked a lot about them during this show. They're good people to deal with. If you have a question about your insurance, uh, give them a call. They'll talk to you about anything aviation. You tell them you listen to the show and you're going to get... Uh, insurance you get a five percent discount just just for mentioning the show uh i can i say it over and over again because i believe it i've seen it they're good people to deal with and if you're going to go out and fly remember 
the process starts before you even leave your house. You got to pre-planning, grab the weather, take a look at it. I mean, we've got a number of, of recent accidents involving weather that's occurring in between the departure city and the, and the arrival city. The weather is all along the pathway. Don't take the risk of flying through storms. Go around it or stay home. And then if you do go to the airport, make sure you do a good session of pre-planning. Make sure you know where you're going to go and where you're going to uh, land if something happens unexpected. Do a full and thorough pre-flight on your airplane. Learn how to do it. If you haven't done one or if you have any questions or concerns, get a mechanic that uh, you've used before and have them go over the airplane with you. Give you the pointers that they use to see if the airplane is in good shape or not. And then if you fly, please fly safely. Don't be one of these statistics that we were rattling off earlier to, in this program. So please fly safe as you can. To listen to more episodes of this show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and remember to fly safe.